Today's episode is a re-release of one of our earliest episodes with Christian Rushing. Christian was one of the most radiant individuals I ever had the pleasure of meeting. Christian passed away a year ago today, February 1st, 2017, and today's re-release is to honor a man whose life, joy, and wisdom we should never forget. The doctor, after having had the scans done and going to the tumor board to talk about what he saw, he came back and he said, well, typically, uh, Mr. Rushing, when we see uh, stage four cancer like this and the gallbladder, the patient's got about a year to live. And then he kind of stared at me like he was expecting me to do something. <laughs> but I didn't really know what to do. I mean, I, I was like, okay, so now, so what do we do now? You know, I've got a year, but what, what are we going to do in this year? Welcome back to the Camp House Podcast. This week is the second half of my conversation with Christian Rushing, an influential urban design advocate in Chattanooga. Last week, we focused on his career in urban design in our city. And if you haven't had the chance yet, I highly recommend hitting pause and going back to listen to that episode first. Today, however, we are going to focus on his life outside of work. A little over a year ago, Christian was given a terminal diagnosis. Yet, despite that, Christian is one of the most radiant people you will ever have the pleasure to meet. So I hope you enjoy the conclusion of our conversation and take inspiration from one of the most cheerful people in our community. This is the Camp House Podcast, and I am your host, Matt Busby. Well, Christian, 16 months ago, you were diagnosed with cancer, and a pretty aggressive cancer. Can you describe the day you found out and kind of all the emotions that went with that? Sure. Uh, the day I found out, well, the previous weekend, I'd taken my youngest son, and he and I were just going to go have a boys weekend down in Atlanta. And I think I heard something about Skittles with this story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, I'll get to the Skittles. The, you know, the, but we did, it was just a great boys weekend. We went and saw the aquarium. We just walked around the park. We ate a lot of pizza and uh, just really kind of enjoyed ourselves. One morning, we were a little bit lazy. And there were some Skittles laying around from last night. And so we were just laying in bed watching Teen Titans Go, which is one of his favorite cartoons. And he had a few Skittles. And so by the time we got back to Chattanooga, the first thing he walks in the door and tells my wife is, Mom, Mom, Dad, let's me eat Skittles for breakfast. So needless to say, I paid for that one. But when we got home from the trip, my wife looked at me and she said, Christian, you, you look like a Simpsons character. You are, you are literally yellow and your eyes are yellow. And I went and looked in the mirror, and she was right. And so I hmm. uh, went to the doctor, and he said, yeah, you've, you've got jaundice, so let's, let's go have a scan. And so I had a scan uh, where they found something going on in my gallbladder. And we went to the surgeon right before we did the biopsy, and he said, well, we've got two potential outcomes, and they are both highly unlikely. One is that you've got an infection, but if you did, it would hurt like hell, and hmm you would know it. The second is that it's cancer. But gallbladder cancer typically happens to women more than men. It typically happens to people in their 60s and 70s. It's typically people who have had gallstones in the past. And even among all of those populations, it's incredibly rare. Uh, So we did the biopsy. And sure enough, as soon as I came out of it, I said, yeah, it's cancer. And um, from an emotional standpoint, I mean, I, was, I guess I was a little 
uh, weirded out. Well, not weirded out. I was concerned. Uh, yeah. You know, upset to a little bit. But I, I think the overall, I was more driven by, okay, what, what happens now? What do we do now? And so over the next 36 hours, my wife and then one of my best friends who happens to be a pediatric oncologist who was at Sloan Kettering in New York for a while and who uh, thankfully now is closer to home at UAB, the two of them sat making conference calls to various doctors and specialists around the country in this kind of amazing piece of research and teamwork and digging. And we found the, the experts in the country on gallbladder cancer. And we went and visited one of them at Vanderbilt. And then we went and visited the other one at MD Anderson. And after considering what they both had to say, we went with MD Anderson uh, for their course of treatment. We were really keen on the possibility of targeted gene therapy that they are big on. Um, and so we went out there and the doctor, after having had the scans done and go into the tumor board to talk about what he saw, he came back and he said, well, typically, uh, Mr. Rushing, when we see uh, stage four cancer like this and the gallbladder, the patient's got about a year to live. And then he kind of stared at me like he is expecting me to do something. <laughs> but I didn't really know what to do. I mean, I, I was like, okay, so... Now, so what do we do now? You know, I've got a year, but what what are we going to do in this year? And so the uh, he went into that a little bit that there is uh, resection was not an option. Resection, you know, being the opportunity to go in and kind of cut it out. Uh, but because that there were lymph nodes involved and that there is some involvement in my liver, it just wasn't an option. So he said, well, what we'll do is we'll start with a course of chemotherapy. And we'll see if it works. And for as long as it works, we'll stay with it. And when it ceases to work, there's another chemo that we can go and we'll see. And so for each of these different chemos, the chance of them working diminishes and the length of time that they work typically diminishes. And uh, but I said, okay, well, let's. Let's go. Let's go get it. Let's do what we can. So originally he was just surprised at your reaction when he told you, you know, your diagnosis, you know, comes with about a year to go. I mean, I think that when he, <laughs> when he tells people that, you yeah. generally get some form of reaction, right? right. Um, and, or, or I guess he does because he, he kind of had this look like he was waiting for me to do something or say yeah. something. Yeah. And I was kind of waiting for him to do something or yeah, say something. So the we're next just direction. staring at each other for yeah. a while, but... Uh, but we kind of moved past that. And so we, you know, came up with this course of treatment. And fortunately, the, it was, you know, while the drugs that they gave me are really nasty, they are not uncommon. And so I was able to do um, pretty much all of my treatments here at Tennessee Oncology in Chattanooga. Great. So it didn't involve me having to go out to Houston, you know, every two weeks to do this. And so the people at Tennessee Oncology are great. The nurses and the doctors have been absolutely fantastic. And so over the course of the year, you know, I've got my chemo life and then I've got the rest of my life. And at first, um, I kind of put work on hold for like a week because I thought that's what cancer <laughs> patients are supposed to do, right? You, you know, you get cancer and you sit around, right? And you take medicine. And, and so for about a week, you know, I sat in the chair and I watched movies and I wrote and it just drove me bonkers. And so 
very clearly yeah. I, I had to be working. And so I continued yeah. to work and, and I love to travel. And so I would kind of make these deals with my doctors on, on <laughs> what I could do and what I couldn't do. And I kind of pushed a little bit. And, uh, and so I made several trips uh, to Europe and Asia uh, over that, over probably the first six months uh, when I got diagnosed. And most of those trips I got to bring my family with, although some of them I got to go by myself which in a way I kind of enjoy doing. And so that's that's kind of been life. So for the last you know year, doing my chemo thing, continuing to work, mm-hmm. uh, because it's, I, I don't really think of what I do as work. I enjoy right. it so much that I'd be doing it even if they didn't pay me, but don't tell them that. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but so from a prognosis standpoint, however, you know, as, as recently as this January, uh, you know, I, I asked my oncologist here, I said, well, you know, we were on track to kind of March was supposed to be my time's up date. And he said, well, yeah, I think, you know, right now we're kind of looking at, you know, you're, you're good through the end of the spring. And so that, I mean, it was somewhat disconcerting, but as we've moved on, uh, you know, I'm on my third different course of chemo now, but this one apparently is working very well. And so, you know, March kind of rolled around and we had another scan done and the tumors continued to kind of get smaller. And so it's like, Doc, all right, so I'm supposed to be gone this month. Sometime, yeah. But, yeah, here we are, mid June. Clearly, that's not, that's not the case. And so he said, yeah, he said, if you want to be optimistic, you know, you can look, you know, we're looking beyond this year, perhaps. But of course, that's one of those things that's in God's hands. At any moment, the chemo can stop working. And when it stops, you know, the, the tumor progresses. And then at that point, you know, you just kind of, you are following nature's course. And so, you know, the great thing out of this is that for the entire year, I haven't taken a second of life for granted and have tried to, uh, well, I've always, even before this, in the last three or four years, I've really, and I think this is just an offshoot of of the kids, but tried to replace things with experiences and to do that a lot. And so the last, you know, four or five years, I've traveled an awful lot, kind of gone to the places I want to eat a lot. You know, the things that that make life enjoyable, I've really tried to do. And so when I found out I had cancer, I didn't, there wasn't a bucket list to make or this kind of backlog of things that I really wanted to do. Because right. I've been trying to live my life that way anyway. Well, that was going to be my next question is, is you know, I, you're, you're a person who defines your, you, you know, you love to work and not in a negative way, um, but you're also a family man. You know, you read your blog for, you know, two or three posts. You realize both of those things about you very clearly. So how, how has the diagnosis changed that dynamic of work and family for you? And, and you're kind of speaking to that, but just uh, talk about that a little, keep going that direction. Talk sure. about that a little bit more. You know, those are things, both of those things are incredibly important to me. I mean, clearly family takes precedent over work, but you know, you just try to, to find a way to structure your life where you do both. And I do. And, uh, you know, I've always had a very active and hands-on role with the boys and with, uh, <clears throat> and that's from, from their extracurricular activities to what we do at the house. You know, I try, to, I try to be a good dad and give them their own time to play without me around. <clears throat> and the older they get, the more they like to take opportunity to, to uh, uh, to do that, you know. So again, 
I haven't really had to restructure life to spend more time with them because that's the way we've kind of set up our life as a family anyway, is to spend as much time together as we can. Well, I am just curious too, you know, how, how long has the Chattanooga Design Studio been in the works to be re- resurrected, yeah. I guess, in the way that it has, or this new yeah. endeavor? And then how much has, has your diagnosis played a role in pushing that forward? Because yeah. it, it does what it, what it feels like from the outside, knowing, number one, your diagnosis, and number two, seeing this uh, design studio start when it is, it seems like it's always been this uh, dream and, and passion that's maybe been buried in you, that this is now coming out. Well, it's, I mean, the design studio for me goes back to 2005. And when Stroud got the sack, two weeks later, I left. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't have my Douglas MacArthur moment. I didn't stand on the steps of the DRC and say, I shall return. But it, it was always in my mind that what that studio did was so important to downtown that we needed to have something like that uh, back. And it has always kind of been in my mind that that's something that the community needed. And when it was gone or, you know, it kind of left a void in the community. And so it kind of took a next step toward that when I started my blog and whenever that was five years ago, maybe yeah. in which I was, I'd kind of dedicated myself to writing a thousand words on urban design every week. And if I'd have known what I was getting myself into, I might have reconsidered. But but actually, that was has been a tremendous opportunity for me because it's made me look at the city in a different way, and it's forced me to constantly be looking at the city because you know a thousand words weekly is a lot, and they you know you finish one week and you've got to start the next one, and so what it really made me do is focus on the city when I'm walking around, when I'm driving around. I'm always thinking about these things. And in those writings, it kind of pops up continually, you know, my deep-seated feel for the need of this kind of collective civic conversation on issues of design and urbanism that some entity needs to be able to be a steward of or that needs to encourage this. And so in those writings, I've, you know, that's kind of a call for Urban Design Studio. And then I've been fortunate enough to work on a few projects downtown uh, with the River City Company that get at the heart of those things. So the Urban Design Challenge, again, we're talking about visions for downtown, Center City Plan, vision right. for downtown, And then on a personal level, in between those projects, I did the design studio retrospective. So, you know, all of the work that the design studio did, models and drawings have kind of over the years kind of begun to get scattered hither and yon. And so I undertook a summer where I went through and tried to find as many of those old drawings and models as I could and archive them and, you know, scan them and get them all in one place so that the community still has that kind of institutional knowledge of the old studio. And so I I, I made an exhibition out of that and put the archive online. Um, What's that website real quick? If you go to our website, which is chattanoogastudio.com, there's a link to the archive from there. And then from a more focused standpoint, a couple of years ago, well, I guess it's been three years ago now, the Lindhurst Foundation asked Ann Coulter and I to put together a study about what it would take to bring a new design studio online or a new urban design resource, mm-hmm. not even necessarily a design studio. 
Uh, and so she and I worked for about a year on this study. Uh, and then shortly thereafter, I was asked to um, lead the charge to implement the recommendation of the study, which was to bring a design studio back. Uh, and so I agreed to do that. And then as part of the process, I was asked to be the executive director. And how long ago was that? And so this was the kind of the formal work on that would have been, would have started in very late 2014. So before so, your diagnosis. Yes. And okay. so this was all, we were working yeah. on this well before cancer and had kind of moved down the road a little bit. And then the cancer diagnosis came. And again, I took kind of my one week pause uh, and to, to kind of sort things out. But then it was kind of, you know, right back to work with doing all the things that it takes to start a nonprofit. And that was a very interesting time in my life because I know architecture and urban design and planning and landscape architecture. Those are things I'm very comfortable with, but I've never in my life started a nonprofit entity before. <laughs> and so kind of going through the process of, of cancer treatment and trying to start a nonprofit from scratch, but with the help of um, many people, uh, I will say for sure. Uh, but it was it's still kind of a, a very dynamic part in my life. And uh, so last summer, we got our uh, 501c3 status, we got our board put together. And so now we've been in the process of getting ready to move into our new space and figuring out what our work plan is going to be. And, you know, all the while in the background, I'm, I'm doing what I need to do from a uh, medical standpoint, and then doing what I need to do from a family standpoint to make yeah. sure that I'm there for the kids and, and my wife. You've been living with cancer for 16 months now, which with, with a uh, terminal diagnosis. Yep. But just about everyone I know and everybody who knows you would characterize you as someone who's very grateful and thankful, like all the time. And I think a lot of people wonder how you manage to be so grateful, so consistently grateful and thankful day in and day out. Well, to me, that's just the way I see a lot because I... You know, I've, you know, lived a fantastic life to this point. If I was to drop dead this moment, you know, to be able to to have the family and that I grew up with and have the opportunity to go to, you know, fantastic schools, travel the world, meet my wife, have two just fantastic kids, live in a great city. I, you know, I've lived a, just a charmed life and I'm thankful for every moment of it. And, you know, I also have just a different perspective on death. I mean, it's the it's part of life, you know, for all of us. It's the uh, we're all headed there. And what I'm grateful for is that I got a heads up. Right. Yeah, so yeah. I got, you know, somebody told me you know, you, you've got around 12 months. You've got some amount of time before you're going to die. And so I've kind of called it my victory lap. <laughs> and so it's been a year of celebrating the things that I want to celebrate and telling the people I love how much I love them and really having an opportunity to do the things that a lot of people don't get to do, uh, who, who die suddenly or, uh, or maybe who just don't take the time to think about things in a certain way. Uh, and so in a way, it's just a, it's a tremendous blessing to be given a year to live or to hear those words. And so, I mean, that's, it's, 
I don't. That's not an affectation that I put on when I see folks. I, that's just my. I'm truly thankful for what I've been given in life, and uh, of course I get down from time to time, as you might expect. Most when I think about the boys, but uh, you know, aside from that, you know, what's to complain about? We talked a little bit too about about death and just you know just looking at life as. I can assure you that this doesn't mean I'm about to die. It just, <laughs> it just means that the reservoir on my on my chemotherapy pump has hit empty. Well, you, talk, you talked a little bit about just viewing death as part of life, and I'm actually wondering if you wouldn't mind taking a moment and just talk about the role of faith in this entire ordeal. Um, you know, I, to be honest, I'm a little hesitant to ask that because I don't want anybody to reduce the approach that you have this incredibly positive, grateful, thankful approach you have to some um, idealistic vision mm-hmm. of where you're going. Yeah. But definitely faith has played a role in, in, in this entire 16-month ordeal. So. Sure it has. And, you know, I'm you know, raised in the church, and it's something that's always meant uh, a lot to me in life. You know, there are... Um, of course, you know, you can look back over 44 years and there, there are times when you are closer or farther away from being in touch with your spiritual self. I can certainly say that for a fact. Uh, you know, something like this obviously gives you, gives you pause and uh, uh, <laughs> a reason to, to have that more front and center in your life. And, you know, it's a shame that it takes that yeah. uh, sometimes. And, I, you know, you know, that's maybe one of those do-overs you'd like to have a little bit. But it is, you know, the ability to pray and accept prayers is a powerful thing. And uh, so things that I want to say or think about or do that, you know, you don't, that aren't really for other people, like things that you wouldn't share they just aren't the business of other people that are between you and the maker. You know, those conversations are are very special to me. And the fact that I've got a lot of friends who are people of faith and to, to understand that they, you know, pray for me as well, it means an awful lot. I'm wondering, uh, you know, I wonder if, if, if you don't mind sharing this part of it. When it comes to your own prayers, how much of those have centered around, you know, sort of, even anger or lamentations versus being thankful and grateful. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I'll say there is, there is zero on, on the lamentation portion. Zero. Because that actually, I have, of all the praying that I've done, I have never once asked to be healed. I've never once asked to not have cancer. The, the thing that I pray for is that whatever situation I'm in, that the, uh, he gives me the strength to handle it the best I can, to be an example of somebody who can take uh, a bad situation and come through it with you know, positive energy and positive thought and to, to um, you know, I want to, and that's primarily to do with the boys is I want them yeah. to see, you know, I don't want to hear, I don't want my children to hear stories about, oh man, Christian, there towards the end. It was just so tough for him. He was, you know, he was just a pitiful guy. I don't want that. You know, I want them to hear, 
man, Christian, every time I saw him, he had a smile on his face and he was happy to be where he was and thankful for what he's had. And, and so that's what I pray for. I guess, why don't you ask for healing at all? Um, it all goes back to praying for sports. Okay. I'm a huge, with that. huge Alabama football fan. And what well, well, and clearly God sports, answers prayers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Uh, and and when I you know, huge sports fan, I've got my team in, in all of the different sports. You know, so Alabama football, uh, Birmingham City, and and English football. But you know, when you're young and and even growing up, it's like, dear God, you know, if you'll just help Alabama beat Auburn, or if you'll just help <coughs> Birmingham City beat Aston Villa. I'll, you know, I'll do anything. I'll give up drinking Coca-Cola or what, you know. And, and you know, you kind of you get to the point, and this was, of course, I'm, you know, even a younger man, that in God's plan, who wins the, the sport game? And, you know, that it's, it's not that he doesn't care, but, he, you know, there are, you know, his plan is so much more rich, and meaningful than something as petty as a, a game, as a soccer game, right? And so when I think about myself, you know, you know, maybe that's my me living to be 80 years old. Maybe that's not part of this plan. You know, maybe, you know, my early death is something that he's going to use in my children's life that's going to be far more productive than anything that I could have thought of. And so it really is more about accepting what his plan is and how you react to that. So rather than say, God, can you change your plan because I want to live? I'm saying, God, go on with your plan, but help me to be able to process it and handle it in a way that is something I can be proud of and that you can be proud of. You know, I wonder what, what advice can you give to people who find themselves in a similar position? You know, like if, if I were to be diagnosed with cancer yeah. tomorrow, what kind of advice would you give me? It's tough, but I mean, I think the, you know, I've been in that situation a couple of times with people uh, here in Chattanooga who have just recently been diagnosed with cancer. And I, and it's, you know, it's tough because I don't, you know, don't, see myself as an expert on the subject and I'm not a therapist. And so I'm kind of, on the one hand, I'm kind of loath to, to say, all right, well, here's what you need to do. But what the kind of common thing that I always say is just continue to be you to the extent possible. Don't let this define you. You know, continue to define yourself and find joys in the thing that, things that have always brought you joy where you can. And um, continue to live your life the best you can. That's the best. I think that's the best advice I could give anybody. I guess to, to make it maybe make it more pointed. What what about as a husband and as a father? If I were diagnosed with cancer yes. tomorrow, what yeah. kind of advice would you give me as a husband yeah. and as a father? Oh, that's a tough one. But you know, I mean, I it's the the standard answer. You know, hug them whenever you can kiss them whenever you can be there for them realize that <clears throat> it's not 
you didn't just get cancer, right? That, that didn't just happen to you. That happened to your family. And so the mental and emotional and spiritual needs of the family are there. And uh, it's not just about how you can make it through cancer. It's about how you can help the people that you love get through it as well. And so finding ways to make that easier for them is is something that I would advise. Well, in your in your blog, you know, you talk about leaving your kids messages and you call them, you call them breadcrumbs. And uh, you know, I wonder looking farther ahead, maybe not the next few years, but even beyond that, say when they're in their 20s. Yeah. You know, can you can how can you speak to them? Yeah. What would you say to your to your boys in their twenties? Something that is essentially, you know, when you think about it that way, is timeless. Yeah. It's just going to be as true in their twenties as it will be in their fifties. Yeah. What would well, you say to them? Well, what actually, what I've done something kind of somewhat similar is I've written them each birthday letters from now until I think I'm up to in their thirties now, <laughs> and so every year I've got a letter written to them. The you know the problem with it is is that they're going to grow over yeah. those 30 years. Yeah. Whereas when I'm writing it, you know, I'm the same. And so what I've done to kind of help make it a little more personal and meaningful is I've taken a story from my life of that year and just written them about it. So, you know, I just like to give them just a little bit of, uh, of color, you know, just a little bit of... Uh, you know, I mean, most of the time they're not like deep life lessons. They're just little funny stories, little bits and pieces of life that hopefully will help them kind of round out their understanding of me. And in some cases, uh, you know, particularly the teenage years, there are some ones where I tell, tell more pointed stories that they can, can kind of hopefully learn from my mistakes. Are there um, any stories in there that your wife doesn't even know about? This would be kind of like the first... Uh, Maybe, maybe, uh, I don't know. Uh, but, you know, those are, that's been one of the toughest things ever, kind of, you know, writing your children letters from the grave is one of the most gut-wrenching things uh, you can imagine. But it's it's fun and important. It's something that, A, uh, I feel like I can be proactive with. And so, that's fun and B, I, I just I think that that's something that they all appreciate, or at least I hope it is. Who has been the most important person in your life? Maybe one professional example and one personal example. Well, I mean, personally, you got to say your mom, right? And I mean, it's true. My mom and I have been very close uh, for a while. There, she she was a single mom, and so we now and so you know, mom and I have been through a lot, and you know. But then, of course, you know, my wife is. You know, I haven't known her as long as my mom, but I mean, that's, you know, that's my soulmate. Uh, from a professional standpoint, I'm going to cheat and say that, the th- that there are three, and that's Kennedy, Coulter, and Watson. So the, the four of us that went out uh, in business together, because they really, well, one, I mean, they're just all brilliant, top-notch people. Uh, but in a weird way, it's like the three elements of my personality can be found in these three <laughs> individuals. You know, Stroud 
you know, I've worked for Stroud almost my whole career and have learned everything I know about urban design from him. And then, you know, on a personal level, we have a tremendous relationship between each other. But, you know, so I kind of see that my artsy designy side is Stroud. Jim Kennedy is a Renaissance thinker and a fantastic family man. And, you know, one of the things that kind of struck me is that I happened across an old magazine. And I can't remember which one it was, but it was kind of a local Chattanooga magazine. And he was on the front cover. And so this one, he was he was the head of the Chamber of Commerce. And you read the article and maybe seems like 25% of it was about work stuff and 75%. He was talking about how much time he was spending with his family and how much he loved his family. And that, that really made a big impression on me. And so he, you know, he's the father of three boys and I'm the father of two. But then from a work standpoint, the guy's brilliant. And just from working in the same office with him and listening to him talk to clients on the telephone, or, you know, in the office overhearing things that he would do. Uh, I just learned so much about how to be a professional, so much about how to be a good consultant. That I mean, I, you know, the, the bread that I'm able to put on our table for the family is through my consulting work is a direct result of watching Kennedy be a professional and just kind of shamelessly stealing all of his techniques and putting him to use in my consulting work. And so, uh, you know, he's just a tremendous guy. And then, and I have literally worked for, you know, or with my whole career. You know, she was head of RPA when I, when I came here, and uh, we still work together on projects to this day. And it's the, the human side of planning of, you know, why or why are we designing in the first place? You know, the, the you know, issues of justice uh, and equality and fairness and gender and race, um, all of those things that I care about are things that she cares about. And I've learned so much about that from her. And uh, again, the level of professionalism and, uh, you know, it's tough to kind of explain it, but yeah. so the three of them yeah. are my are my one uh, are my works. one big professional influence. What gives you hope when you think about the future of Chattanooga, a city that you have invested a great deal of your life and talent in? What gives you hope? What gives me hope is the fact that most of the conversations that need to be had in the community are being addressed at some level. I don't think we've got solutions to the problems, but it, it at least looks like the community is now acknowledging that they're there and they're talking about it, which is the first step. So when we're talking about the need for affordable housing, we're talking about the need for good schools, we're talking about the need to have all Chattanoogans share in the prosperity that's going on here. You know, those are things that aren't necessarily urban design issues, but they're things that are the kind of pressing issues for the community. And so I'm very hopeful that since these conversations have begun, that they will bear fruit at some point in the future. All right. So final question. All right. 
Let's say you and the family want to go and get the best hamburger in the city, and then take it to eat at the best public space in the city. Where's the burger from? Which burger is it? And what public space do you guys go to? See, when you ask that question, you're going to make somebody mad, right? Because yeah, I know you know you know people who own these places, and they're and they're. And I will say that Chattanooga has four or five really good hamburgers, right? But we've got zero good Chinese places. That's true. And to me, that it's is the travesty true. of Chattanooga. Yeah. The one fault of Chattanooga from a culinary standpoint is that there's not a good Chinese restaurant right. I'm in with town. you 100%. Um, but okay, so I will say the caveat that the answer to this question will change on a daily basis. If you're to ask me this in two hours, I'd probably give you a different answer. So right um, now, but you right want to now, go and get... I'd go to Merv's and, and just get a standard cheeseburger for the family. And we're going to eat it at a public space. Yep. I would go to, it's kind of hot outside, so you have to, you have to take that yeah, it, it can be 75 degrees outside yeah. right now. Oh, okay. Um, I'm going to Miller Plaza. So we're going to go to Miller Plaza and eat hamburgers from ours. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time, Christian. My pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. This is a blast. Amen. Thanks again to Christian for joining us for these past two weeks, talking about urban design and then opening up about his experience with cancer. If you want to follow more of Christian's story, you can do so at his website at christianrushing.blogspot.com. And as always, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then please go on to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to the Camp House podcast. And you can always share this episode or any of the other episodes we air at thecamphouse.com slash podcast. Thanks for being here, and we'll see you next week.